views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims millions, when... Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanna and Alaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who helped combat it. Today is June 22nd, 2016. We'll go through this week's collection of stories, articles, and events with an abolitionist perspective. If you'd like to share a comment or question, call in and join us at one six four one seven one five three six six zero. The access code is five four nine zero three two pound. Just press star six and one to queue up from the conference line. A rider of the twenty first century underground railroad is Lawrence Lorenzo Montoya, who was just fourteen years old when he was sentenced to life in prison for a murder he did not commit. Our abolitionist in profile is Martin Robinson Delaney, 1812 to 1885, an abolitionist and the first African-American field officer in the U.S. Army. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? Hey, Max. How are you today, sir? Um, I'm, I'm here, man. I'm here. I'm ready to go. Ready to go. So you ready to go? I'm ready to go, man. It's just so much that's been hitting the airwaves and the internet waves and things that have been coming out one after the other. You can't help but be fired up and ready to kick ass and take names, you know? It's kind of hard to keep up with it all sometimes, too. Oh, it was hard for, to keep up with it years ago. I mean, I went, right. I went past that years ago. That's why I try to keep a broad perspective so I stay focused. All the different incidents are repeating. Just over and over again, different things happen, and that's going to go on. But as long as we keep our focus on the big story, we are going to be all right. I hope so, Max. I hope so. I truly hope so, man. I got to stay positive, man. Hey, is you, Johanna with us today uh, at the start? Um, no, uh, he has not joined us yet, as he's probably still making his way home from work. Oh, okay, okay, no no problem, man. You know, I got the date uh, for my appearance as the keynote speaker for Missouri Corps Cure in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, it's going to be September 24th, and uh, I believe it's from 10 a.m., to 4 p.m. the entire day of events with uh, several speakers, but uh, I'll be setting the tone of it, and you know what I'm going to be talking about. I'll put a video uh, promotion that we put together 
for uh, you to check out uh, New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, take a look at it. It has all the information there, what be, will be happening that day, when and where. Hmm. You know, you might get an opportunity to finally meet face-to-face with Johanan on that trip. Oh, dude. The first thing I did when they confirmed the date was call Johanna. And they were like, yo, <laughs> here we come. <laughs> we got to get together, brother. <laughs> I'm hoping I can get him up on the uh, platform with me to say a few things as well. Because, you know, uh, two heads are better than one for sure when it comes to abolition. Oh, I think he loved that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So maybe I'm certainly looking forward to that. Yeah. But um, lots of important things happen this week in terms of 21st century slavery and human trafficking if this is your first time tuning in to new abolitionist radio which is a weekly program that's all we discuss now you might get confused and and you hear all these stories about police and and we're calling them slave catchers and you're hearing these stories and they're using terms like mass incarceration and we calling it modern slavery and what have you but that is what this program is about it's a news information and a program where we are not shy about sharing our views on what we are facing today um i heard uh um on the tando radio show brother dave was going through some of his news items of the day you know you're just sharing some quick news and he had shared this article where it was talking about uh private prisons and the economic pillar that it has become in the united states and then he was reading a little bit and it said you know in 1865 the 13th amendment abolished slavery and dave knew right away to say no that's incorrect that's incorrect you you hear Scotty, you hear other people on this station tell you all the time the 13th Amendment did not abolish slavery. So, you know, it was good to hear another host just be reading news and then come across that language and know it's not correct and relay that incorrectness to his audience. That's certainly the fruit of our labors collectively, brother, and it's a good thing to hear and see. It's not an easy job to change a narrative that has been around for 150 years. It's just not an easy job. And uh, it happens one person by one person. You know, one tells another, and another tells another, and eventually you get the truth out. And that's what we're working towards. So it's great when you're hearing it coming out from different voices and in different levels of media, because even mainstream media is finding it hard to avoid it now. We've seen that happen on numerous occasions where people from our camps have invaded mainstream media and put it right out there. And sometimes they just weren't prepared when the average person asked, like the young lady out in Ohio. Right, right, right. But yeah, it's certainly a difficult thing to change a narrative that's been around for 150 years. Yeah, it's See, difficult. The truth. Go ahead, Scotty. No, I was just going to say, you're right. It, it, it's difficult, but we're doing it. Mm-hmm. And that's a miracle. That's the big picture. That's the big picture. Stay on track. Change the narrative. The truth will take care of itself. The truth will defend itself. The truth will show itself. All we have to do is just open it up, open people's minds up to accepting the truth. 
And uh, there's a quote that says, all truth passes through three stages. First, it's ridiculed. We remember that, right, Scotty? When we were a big joke, right? Right. Second, it's violently opposed. And we saw the prison industry start doing that when they started fighting back against the narratives and activists. And then third, it's accepted as being self Evident. And that's where we're heading towards right now, where you can talk to someone about mass incarceration and right in their head pops up modern day slavery and they'll say it. Hmm. Yep. But um, again, though, it, it, any individual, you are responsible for the truth. Once you become once you find truth and we're talking about, of course, modern slavery. Uh, but once you find that truth, man, it's your. It, I feel like it's your duty, Max, to share that truth with other people. I mean, I just can't sit around and see, like, for example, my nephews. I got two twin nephews. Um, uh, I got more than that, but these two in particular, I'm around more than others, you know. And they only 11 years old and, and what have you, so, but still still I can't have them going to school and being told all these lies about Abraham Lincoln and, and slavery was over after the Civil War and all of that no no I have an obligation to share this truth with them so they don't grow up you know and be in there hell I think I was in my 40s Max <laughs> you know uh, before I stopped believing a lie so hey, all I'm saying is once you hear any truth, but we're talking about the truth that slavery was never abolished, you just can't keep that to yourself. You have an obligation to share it with others. And since we don't have access to the masses like corporate media does, we depend on word of mouth. And through word of mouth, I would say we've been doing a pretty good job of spreading that truth that slavery was never abolished. I agree. But, you know, just recently, a couple of days ago, we celebrated, well, not we, but nationally, there were celebrations for Juneteenth. And, you know, several of my friends have reached out to me and said, what are your thoughts on Juneteenth, Max? And, you know, my first paid performance as an artist was when my family and I were working together as a group, the first rap family in the history of hip-hop music. And the first thing we did was lead a parade on Juneteenth and then give a performance at Eastside Park right there back in the early 90s uh, as a family on Juneteenth at the Juneteenth Festival. I believed the same hype a long time ago. But as I started finding out the truth, I started realizing that what I was celebrating never actually happened. It just didn't happen. So I was celebrating a lie, which was causing more harm than good, by helping to convince the people around me that for some, some time in history, at some point, slavery was abolished, when it, in fact, was not. Anybody right. that reads the 13th Amendment can be clear on that. And often these people who are managing the Juneteenth festivals like to quote Frederick Douglass. Well, let me tell you something. If you're going to quote Frederick Douglass, at least read his conclusion on the Emancipation Proclamation, which is widely available in a speech called, I denounce this so-called emancipation as a stupendous fraud. He denounced it as a fraud, 
but here you are celebrating it as a reality. Right, and, and we know it's because you are oblivious to the truth. We're not blaming you for being ignorant about it. Like I said, I was, you know, I'm about to turn 50 this year, but I was well into my 40s before I actually read the 13th Amendment and discovered that truth. And here's the cruel thing about the Juneteenth. As people tell that story of the Union troops taking two years after the passage of the 13th Amendment to make their way to Texas, where over 250,000 people were still enslaved, you know, and, and, and to tell them that they freaked. Now, look, man, it shouldn't have took no doggone two years for that news to reach them about, you know, the 13th Amendment. Even though we know that it did not abolish slavery, it still shouldn't have took two years for them to hear about the Emancipation Proclamation in the 13th Amendment. But here is the cruel thing, that these Union troops, they're not really looked at by anyone but as, you know, the messengers. But what happened after they got that news that they were free? They start leaving plantations, and where did they start going? Well, they started going to military forts where the Union Army soldiers were stationed so that they could feel safe and protected from these terrorists who, who were terrorizing them. And as has been stated and reported on this program before, a law was passed to criminalize people, follow, followers camps is what they call it, from uh, camping outside of these forts or looking to these Union soldiers for protection and what, and you can get arrested. And many of them did get arrested, and guess where they ended up? Right back in this new form of slavery called prison slavery. That's so sick, man. People don't tell that whole story. It's even worse at some points. The Guardian has an article, which I just put on New Abolitionist Radio, that basically says, uh, immediately after the alleged emancipation of the four million people who were freed, one million of them died from disease and starvation and neglect. They just literally just let them die off. And I think that right. was the intention right there from the beginning. Even the Union soldiers were very abusive and brutal towards those who had fought beside them in the Civil War for the same reasons. Uh, we do have Yohanan joining us. Yohanan is joining Peace, us. Peace, Yohanan. Welcome home, brother. Peace. Peace to the abolitionists. Good to be here, brothers. I've been listening to you all here for a few minutes, so uh, definitely hearing what you're saying about Juneteenth and just about, you know, the situation just going from the frying pan right on into the fryer, you know, um, with the end of slavery, as they call it. So, yeah. Yeah, it kind of hurts my feelings, man. Just, you know, not intentionally, but unintentionally, when I just look at my brothers and sisters celebrating a lie. And not only is it that they're celebrating a lie, but by doing so, they are actively supporting the slavery that is oppressing their own people, turning a blind eye to it while saying, yay. We was freed in 1865, and yet you got 2.5 million people in prison in every study, including our own, shows you that the only overwhelming number are people of color, black, native, and Hispanic. And most of them, 70% are in for nonviolent drug-related crimes. And in some places like Missouri, where I'm heading out to, 46% of the prison population is in there for nonviolent drug or uh, nonviolent crimes. And and also today, and again, we are not criticizing people who don't know what they don't know. 
All right, but you should try to find out. You know, you should always be seeking knowledge and what have you. But I'm I'm not criticizing people for not knowing what they don't know. But today I heard black people talking about making Juneteenth a federal holiday. Well, why would you want to federalize a lie? Why would you want to turn a lie into a so-called holiday and whatnot? But again, people don't know what they don't know. But, you know, that would be the second greatest lie ever told, in, in my opinion, by the United States government if they turned Juneteenth into a federal holiday. The first, what was the first lie? That slavery was abolished by the 13th Amendment after the conclusion of the Civil War. That, to me, is the greatest lie I have ever heard, read, uh, somebody told me about in my life, and that would be the second you know, is to make Juneteenth a holiday. national holiday, it's going to be a bunch of white supremacists pointing over at them and saying, look, all the Negroes agree with us. Story re-ended. They, so we're making it a national holiday because they agree with us. Right. And, and, somebody, much more difficult. and somebody will make a whole lot of money selling Juneteenth products. I have an alternative, Scotty. I made my own holiday. This year, we celebrate the fifth annual National FU Day on June 27th, where you can give anybody you want a great big old FU. Make a list and post it publicly. And and during National FU Day, you're supposed to take it. Just take it. Whoever wants to give you an FU, don't strike back all angry. Give your own FUs out. So join us on National FU Day, June 27th. I've got a long list this year. That's a whole lot realer than some fake Juneteenth celebration of something that never occurred. There you have it. That is an alternative. But like you said, I think the ultimate thing for America's purpose is, of course, the the, uh, monetization of pretty much any thing that possibly can be monetized. (laughs) So like you said, making it a holiday here goes all the, you know, we got to sell goods and services to honor the day. And then, like was also said, then that cements it in stone, which I think is really the the, the subtle uh, mm-hmm. system of control that they use to, to solidify it as, as a reality. You know, so much of what we're dealing with is based on, I mean, it's just a simulation. It's not really the real thing. This is a simulation of freedom when you are a simulation of, of ending slavery when you just make it another way, another form of doing it, or another hide it behind walls, or criminalize it in a different manner. But people don't realize that the original version of slavery in this country was really about criminalizing the kidnapped Africans at that point. Hell, the first, the white folks that was coming, the Europeans, the indentured servants, were criminalized individuals. They didn't own land. The commons area, like we had a Peter Lineball, the professor and author that came on the program. I'll never forget when he told us about that. Um, in, in his book, uh, what was it, the Magna, what was it, uh, where he was talking about uh, how the commons era of uh, Europe and England in particular, people had common lands. People had passed down generational lands for who knows how long, and they grew their crops, and they took care of themselves. They policed the territories. They did whatever. And when the kings and dukes and the hierarchies, the one percenters start taking over, they criminalized those people. And when they criminalized them and threw them in the prisons they had there, they shipped them over here. When they got here, they were indentured servants for a certain period of time. They could not withstand the work. They could not withstand the conditions. They could, really wasn't going to do no whole lot of work because they knew they was on the clock, so it didn't really matter. They were just waiting to get set free. When they found the Indians here, 
the Indians could escape and be right back with their people. They knew the land. They knew the seasons. They knew everything, so they couldn't really be victimized like that. When they found the Africans, they shipped them all the way around the world, and they couldn't report back to nobody. They was in some place they didn't know nothing about a lot of them, and they couldn't be they couldn't get help from Africans back at home. They could withstand the work, they could withstand illness, they could take the pressure and whatever and keep going, and they kept on doing it, and the whole thing was set up. Everybody that was caught up in it was criminalized. The version we're dealing with now is about criminalizing people. So nothing has really changed. You know, we're running towards the where we should be starting our first story, so let's do that. And if you don't mind, I would like to give an opportunity to Brian Stevenson to uh, clarify himself. You know, we lambasted him here recently because in a national interview as a champion of abolition, knowing firsthand in Alabama what's going on and fighting for the rights of the prisoners there, and often calling it slavery, when given the opportunity, he wasted that opportunity and started hemming and hawing when the interviewer, interviewer asked him point blank, do you believe this is slavery? And instead of saying yes and explaining why logically, because he knows how and why, he avoided that question and offered symptoms in exchange. So I think maybe that got to him, and he put out a video recently which clarifies his statement. So I just put it on New Abolitionist Radio. Scotty, if you want to cue it up, it's only a couple minutes long, and it also educates our audience on what we're talking about here and gives him a chance to say exactly what he feels. It's on the New Abolitionist page. I'm sorry, I was talking while I'm muted. Yeah. Uh, give me just a second. Page, I posted it there. It's from Ryan Stevenson, who is the founder uh, of the organization Equal Justice Initiative. Okay. And he's also an abolitionist. All right. Um, it's pulling up. Um, wait, wait, wait a minute. Does this have any um, audio to it? I don't think it does. I've seen yes. this video. Oh. Well, it doesn't? I thought it did. Uh, we'll see. I don't think slavery ended in 1865. I think it just evolved. So this will be the entrance to the museum, and people will be directed over into this corner, uh, which will be where we replicate a slave warehouse. And it'll go from slavery to lynching, to segregation, to mass incarceration. Why does the United States have the highest rate of incarceration in the world? Why are there six million people on probation or parole? Why is it true that today one in three black male babies born in this country is expected to go to jail or prison? There is a lie from slavery through racial terrorism, through segregation, that is evident in what we see in our criminal justice system today. I am persuaded that we really won't eliminate the problems of discrimination in the criminal justice system, in the education system, in the employment system, until we change the narrative of racial difference that we have all accepted. I believe that at the end of the 1960s, when we passed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, we should have committed to a process of truth and reconciliation, but we didn't do that. If you go to South Africa, uh, you are not allowed to spend time in that country without confronting the history and the legacy of apartheid. If you go to Germany, you'll see a nation that has confronted the legacy of the Holocaust. In this country, we do the opposite. 
And I think that has to change. I think we have to be more honest. This exhibit has been created by jars with the names of lynching victims. Sometimes multiple people would be lynched at the same time. So this was an incident where five people were lynched all at the same time in Carrollton, Alabama, including a married couple. Well, most people don't understand that uh, lynching was racial terrorism because it wasn't just the people who were victimized, it was the entire community. These acts of humiliation and degradation created this desensitizing to victimization. We are indifferent to evidence of bias and discrimination. We are indifferent to innocent people being wrongly condemned on death row for 30 years. I think there's a historical root to that silence. My light bulb moment, it was only eight or nine years ago when I went to Africa for the first time. This young attorney met me at the airport and he took me to the ocean. She said, I wanted to bring you here to say something to you. And this lawyer turned to me and he said, I just want to say, I'm sorry, because this is where we lost you. And all of a sudden, by just thinking about history shifted. When I came back to Montgomery, uh, the walk I make all the time down this street felt different. I was thinking about being on the other side of that injury, of that violence, of that abuse. I did begin to think about the ways in which we have to change our understanding of this story. And that's why we're creating a museum. That's why we have to have truth and reconciliation in this country. There you have it. That was Brian Stevens, Brooke Stevenson from the Equal Justice Initiative in Alabama, just received a million dollar uh, gift from Google uh, to, to help towards what he's trying to accomplish and it appears that one of the first things he's doing is to build a slavery museum um, I'm looking forward to seeing how this uh, helps us in this movement to end slavery and what else he's planning on doing with that million hmm. but at least we gave him his opportunity to correct what he was saying but he did waste that opportunity. It's not going to be repeated like that. Maybe another time he can get it. Hopefully he'll choose to be bold and honest instead of diplomatic the next time. Yeah, that million dollars is about going to go a long that. way toward uh, keeping him under control. I can promise you that. <laughs> I was about to say that. These, that's not, I don't mean to laugh, but I'm laughing to keep from cursing, but you're right on point. I was thinking it as you were saying it, uh, Brother Johan, and that, that one million butter biscuits, man, uh, that, can, that can, you know, uh, uh, kind of stifle you, man. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm not going to sit here and challenge his integrity or his morals or his ethics and stuff like that. I'm going to give a man a chance. I'm not all that excited about taking that money and building a slavery museum. I personally could have thought of some much more better ways to use that money. Maybe he's already doing it. Like the Innocence Project needs all the help it can get. There's a right. lot of victims out there of modern-day slavery who was released after uh, being exonerated that don't have a dime. Not two nickels to rub together. See, this is the thing, though. This ties in directly to what we were just talking about with federalizing the Juneteenth holiday. All of these, <clears throat> okay, when you underneath and the people that are so-called above reach down and give you a hand some kind of way so they make it seem, 
it's only to to some effect or another to increase their position. It's just not it's not any other way. Google is no more given in I mean, I try to check myself. I know I've been rough on people over the years here. I talk bad about Black Lives Matter. I didn't talk bad about other charities and groups and people that just are missing the mark. And in this situation, just like we talked about the federalization of a Juneteenth holiday, cements as a fact for all racist people, for all people that are not really concerned and really don't care anyway, they can just refer to it instantly and say, oh, yeah, that's hey, that must mean it was over because it's a holiday. For all people that are call themselves educated and know all about it and the system taught them and they got their degree to prove it and they're better than you, so they fill in positions and titles and all of that, they're going to go with it too. The only people that it really matters that it's a lie to are the people that feel the pain of the oppression and are seeking the truth and have an organic path where they found the truth and they know the difference between the truth and the lie. Same thing with this. When Google gives you a million dollars to make a museum that says slavery is over, that says that slavery is this and slavery is that, and they have a say-so in projecting to you what it is, what it was, what made it the way, you know, all these different things are defined in this museum that they are funding. Well, when it's done and when we see the end result and when we begin to see what's going on and all of that and it's and it's there then we'll be able to know for a fact how far or how close it is to what we've discussed here and we know we've defined as the truth and have not been challenged in for years so I'm like you to a certain extent Max I can give him some room to live but I'm also I mean I already said what I said that million dollars <laughs> yeah, right? I know I know brother even our, our wisest and our brightest have been fooled. We, we've seen that with our intellectuals on so many levels. So when we see one or two come out like he's doing and, and follow the truth, we expect so much more and we're easily disappointed when they falter, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm reminded of the just, uh, what is it, just leadership, uh, Brother Glenn uh, Martin. You know, we've had some conversations with this brother behind, you know, behind the closed door, so to speak, about what's really going on. And, I mean, he's told me explicitly that look, I know what I'm talking about. I've been in another situation like what you're talking about where they were giving me money so I wouldn't really seek the truth and I got paid really well to go out here and represent these other charities and these other groups and I chose to leave that behind so I could start doing this just leadership because I know this is the way. And what they're talking about is decarcerating some pitiful number. I mean, sure, everybody to get out will be great. I mean, hell, I'm arguing to keep Ken Thompson in place for 20 people. He got exonerated over the last two or three years. So I understand every single life matters, and, and I want everybody that can be removed from that plantation situation to be pulled out of that. Yes, so I appreciate what the GIST leadership does, but we know what we're talking about here is not what they're talking about over there. They are talking about reform. They are talking about gradualization. They are talking about a luxury of lives and years that can just remain behind bars on that plantation in that slave situation as opposed to when you've got the position, when you are in the public eye, when you've got the funding, when you've got the infrastructure in place, when you've got the ear of the politicians and of the decision makers, and you've got everybody on front street, put the pedal to the metal, man. What can they do to you? Well, you got the right point there. We're running up on our break time, Johanan. Let's take a break. When we come back, we should get into prison uh, slavery as it applies to the labor forces being used. You listen to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after these messages. 
but many state governments have discovered that they can put their inmates to work themselves providing various goods and services and use the profits to offset their budgets. In 1963, for instance, the Lone Star State created Texas Correctional Institute Industries, TCI, which is run by an appointed board. On its website, TCI boasts of producing garments and cloth products, janitorial supplies, laundry supplies, nameplates and easels, park equipment, stainless steel, security fixtures and food service equipment, school bus renovation services, tire repairs and retreading, and much, much more. Its sales were almost 90 million dollars in 2014. The Texas prisoners themselves say and reported by the Intercept backed them up that they aren't paid a damn dime for any of this. Now if that's not slavery, then please explain someone to me what is. There are also joint venture programs in which private businesses partner with state governments to employ inmates. Arizona Correctional industries, for example. Notice how they all name industries? For example, uses inmate labor to staff call centers and run print shops, among other things. They claim they provide 2 million labor hours in 2015 alone. 2 million labor hours. All told, at least 37 states, there they are quoting New Abolitionist Radio, have legalized contracting out prison labor to private companies in some form. There are far too many corporations to list, but IBM, Boeing, Microsoft, AT&T, Macy's, and plenty of others all participated in some form in the past. The arrangement is highly attractive to both governments and private businesses, and it's not crazy to argue that the incentive to expand the supply of super cheap and involuntary labor is a big driver driver of America's increase in convictions and sentencing length for minor offenses. I'm not going to read the whole article because it's considerably long. Check it out on New Abolitionist Radio. We've got enough to go on right there. Brothers, Your Honor, Scotty. I mean, I, I don't really have too much to add to that, man, except for week after week, story after story, it's just undeniable evidence that slavery is still going on in this country. And I'm getting kind of pissed off right now as we see these politicians in Washington grandstanding over trying to pass some gun rights, having a sit-in at it in of uh, the house and you know people are are being enslaved every freaking day man it's just it's just shameful man it's a damn shame I, I was feeling some kind of way when i heard john lewis was up there leading the way for his gun control rights and in my mind i'm thinking to myself you have been following white supremacy doctrines and priorities so long that you don't even know your own priorities anymore. You just quickly jump up and say, oh, Massa's house is burning. Our house is burning, so we got to put the fire out because Massa's house is burning. Meanwhile, 13 million people went to prison or went to jail in 2015. Two and a half million are in prisons uh, in a static way. And Recently, another report came out to show that one in 20 of them are sexually molested. They're talking about 70,000 people being freaking raped in prison. All of these things are going on to your community, to your people. 
3,500 deaths at the hand of law enforcement in one year, law enforcement and prison personnel, but you're worried about gun rights. What about the rights of the cops and their guns? I doubt if you'll include that in there as well. They'll probably still show up in Missouri again with the National Guard and Army-style uh, military equipment that they'll be using on civilians who look just like you. So, yeah, it bothered me seeing him up there doing whatever the hell he's doing and twisting the priorities to where Mass's house burning is the number one thing. Yeah. These, uh, these guys, I mean, they haven't represented the actual interest. And really, looking back, I have to be critical of what went on during that time. I mean, even Martin himself said before they took him out that he realized that, you know, what he was doing wasn't necessarily the best thing. What was the quote of, uh, realize I may be integrating my people into a house that's on fire. I mean, like, Malcolm always told him. So, you know, guys like John Lewis love to have the leverage with the dominant culture, with white supremacy, with white folks making decisions. He loved having the leverage of saying he wasn't a Malcolm. But Malcolm had it pretty much right. Martin came around, and they took him out. John Lewis is from that time. So anytime you look at Medgar Evers, anytime you look at dozens and dozens of civil rights leaders from that time who were either put in prison for life and died there, or were blown away right there on the streets, and then you see these couple of tokens that is still out here, aging before our eyes, barely holding on to life, but still hugging Obama, still taking the, the podium, still speaking on. It's it's almost to the point where if you're still out here talking, we got to know you ain't doing nothing but talking some mess. Yeah, dude. Like Scotty said, it pisses me off when I see that. These are supposed to be our leaders of our communities, our brightest, our boldest, with history that shows that they're willing to stand up and fight but they've forgotten what is going on. They look around and they don't see a problem. They see all their people going in and out of these jails and so many others being employed to keep them in these jails, and they think that that is perfectly fine. And when it is not perfectly fine, there is nothing fine or okay or perfect about having the largest prison population in the history of humankind on planet Earth in one nation. There's nothing okay about that. And if you're just ignoring it, then you're ignoring the results of it as well. Meaning you're ignoring the suffering of your own people in exchange for what? Because Alex Jones and them is crying about Second Amendment rights? <laughs> man. It's terrible, man. The Butter Biscuit Brigade has uh, been out here for a long time. A long, long time. So... I can't, I mean, I'm beyond the point of it. So like you said, the numbers themselves are really the crux of our argument. We're not talking about isolated incidents. We're not talking about some outlier situation here and there, individual little... No! We're talking about something that is so mainstream. Something that is so pervasive. Something that is generating billions and even hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean... We're talking about really more or less the lifeblood of the American system itself because capitalism is, is, has not ever been shown in any historical context to be able to operate, to be able to be sustained without some slave class providing the labor. It just has never occurred. So... 
I mean, whatever these people are doing, the John Lewis's and the it's another one. What's it? Elijah Cummins. These old head dudes or whatever. And then oh, who's that? No, I, I'm agreeing with you, brother. Just so oh, I okay. I thought you named another one. I might have forgot. But yeah, all of the rest of them, and even the oh, new Clyburn. ones. James Clyburn, right here in South Carolina. Another one. Okay, there you go. And we're finding and meeting and struggling to communicate with many, many new ones, young ones in their 20s and young 30s. All these black professionals and PhDs and sociologists and professors and and criminologists and attorneys and ex-cops, this now activists and all these people that want to put their hand in the pot and act like they're helping to cook us something that's going to help us. These people are still not calling this what it is. They are still not reacting to terrorism like what he said with the lynching. That's community terrorism. Well, when you still lynching Ayanna Jones, seven years old, all the way up to Pearly Golden, 92 years old, and everything in between, you're still lynching. You're still terrorizing the community. When the Taliban terrorized, they went to war and started bombing the hell out of everything. And they into the millions of people that they've killed behind this so-called war to end terror. So as we've seen terrorist groups proliferate and continue to get funded and continue to hide and slip around between different nations, we go bomb everywhere. We got 130 plus active conflicts going on around the planet that the United States military is engaged in currently. Most of that is because we are fighting terror, as they say. So we're not fighting terror with reform, unless you're talking about black folks and poor folks in America who are, the way they're fighting is throwing people in prison and saying we'll throw a few less in prison. We'll, t we'll scale back the drug war a little bit. We'll go from 100 to 1 crack sentencing to 18 to 1. That's reforming terror. Terror. You know, when I hear the word terror, Johanan, I think of the video I saw yesterday, and no, I'm not even going to bother sharing it. I knew abolitionist radio. You've seen enough videos like this. But I saw a video of two PO officers arresting a black man because he had violated his probation. So they had this one white guy on the ground punching him and holding him down, trying to handcuff him. About three or four brothers, young brothers, couldn't be older than 16, 17, 18, standing around watching and videotaping it. This is how I saw the video, because of them. And then the other cop was trying to push them back. So he steps up to the one young brother with the camera and says, back the F up. And the young brother's like, for what? And then he calls on his little walkie-talkie thing for backup. And the brother says, you need backup for one freaking guy? So the white cop, both of them are white cops, the one white cop that was looking at the young brother who said, you need backup for one freaking guy, turned around and curb stopped this young brother who was being held down on the, in the head on the ground, knocking him at least unconscious immediately, and then turned around and looked right back at that same brother that just questioned him and said, now what? That's what we're dealing with. So, you know, I, I'm not even going to share that video, but I do want to give a shout out. I do want to give a shout out to the IWW for putting together this national strike and leading the way along with other organizations like Incarcerated Garden State. We've got to put an end to this, and they need your help. They have positions available, which we posted on New Abolitionist Radio. Take a look, as well as donations. And there's a new video that came out from Decarcerated Garden State called 99 Decarcerate. Please share it, send it around, and if you know people inside, let them know. September 9th, no work. Shut it down. Don't fight. 
Just no work. Nothing. You ain't even picking up a booger off the floor. Nothing. Okay? Anyway, I got another story. I'm gonna hold on for that for a moment. Uh you guys have anything to add? No, sir, I don't. No, nah, we're good. Yeah, I, I get, I'm like you today, Johan. I'm just oh man, you know what I mean? Sometimes you just gotta let it out. You just gotta yeah. let it out. Yeah. Because you see what it is. You see, they're not slowing down with it, you know. So really, to me, these stories, of course, individually, they're all important, and we and we do the best we can to report on it, not just on these, you know, weekly podcasts, but also day to day, all day long, steadily sharing. I do not remember in the years since you all allowed me to come on this program with you, and in the year or so that I knew about the program before I came on here, I don't remember not even one single day that there were not dozens of headline stories to report on. New one. one. Right. Brand new news every single day for years. And it is not slowing down. As much as we're reporting, as much as we're making inroads, as much as we are seeing, you know, campaigns like Sanders uh, adopting some of the language as far as abolishing private prisons, as much as this is getting out into the mainstream conversation from 2012 election to 2016, at least they pandered to us to the point of mentioning it in the campaigns. It seems as though it's pretty much gone away at this point, but at least they entertained us for a while talking about it, and it's not slowing down. No. But you know, the blessing for us, though, is we get to get to wear those new abolitionist radio glasses that allows us to see these things unfold in ways the average person couldn't possibly see. They're only seeing right. parts and bits of it. But we're right. seeing this whole thing unfold. Like, the next story is in uh, regards to the immigrant situation. Back in 2012, we were reporting on how they were about to close down the immigration facilities on the border there uh, near Mexico. We also reported on how suddenly there was this influx of children coming in based on a rumor that if you came to the border and went into these immigration centers, you would get out and be able to get your citizenship at least in about a year or so. So people started sending their children, about tens of thousands, and these immigration centers blew up, and Obama came out and gave $3.7 billion to the GEO group to help make it happen, right? And then we watched as they put in these mandatory quotas of 34,000 people have to be in there. We also watched how they started exploiting these immigrants for free labor. And we were talking about what happened in Texas where, uh, what was it, like nearly 3,000 people living in tents in a prison built for 600 or something like that, and all of them working out in the open. Well, this one comes out. It's a study from Countercurrents that says U.S. study finds immigrants in prison to boost prison corporation profits. Now, we know that's true. We've been telling you that. But apparently people need studies. Studies help. So here, let me read some of this study. 93% of the people who are locked up in the U.S. in order to meet the minimum legal requirements for the number of people who must be locked up on possible violations of U.S. immigration laws are locked in for-profit prisons, which are owned by corporations that heavily fund a few politicians, including Hillary Clinton. That 93% finding was published on June 20th in a study by the Center for Constitutional Rights titled Banking on Detention, Local Lockup Quotas, and the Immigration Dragnet. Gina Schwartz, Senior Staff Attorney for CCR, 
said in releasing a report, almost all guaranteed minimums are found in facilities that contract with private prison companies and ICE, ICE Immigration and Customs Enforcement, actively collaborates with these companies to keep details of their contracts secret. On 28 April 2015, the Washington Post published an article how for-profit prisons have become the biggest lobby no one is talking about. Senator Marco Rubio is one of the biggest beneficiaries. It failed to include one crucial fact. Hillary Clinton is the other. On 6 October 2015, Vice News revealed that that fact when they headlined how private prisons are profiting from locking up U.S. immigrants and showed that Hillary Clinton was by far the top recipient of funds from Corrections Corporation of America and that Marco Rubio was by far the top recipient from the other of the industry giants, Geo Group, and that both candidates had raked in around the same total amounts from the industry. Furthermore, the political contributions are the visible tip of the iceberg of the influence these folks wield. Consequently, U.S. immigration policies are highly shaped by corruption. Large corporations and their board members and their PACs don't invest this money for nothing. They're good at business, they're buying policy, and the people who write and implement policy are basically their employees. Just on the government's payroll, and in order to get onto the government's payroll, these politicians need these campaign contributions. After retirement from the government, government officials get hired by what libertarians naively call the productive economy. Other institutions that are as beholden to the big money people as the government itself is. It's like a person being hired by different subsidiaries of the same corporation. This is the reason why 93% of the people who are locked up in the U.S. in order to meet the minimum legal requirements for the number of people who must be locked up on possible violations of U.S. immigration laws are locked in for-profit prisons, which are owned by corporations that heavily fund a few politicians. It's simply good business. Rotten government is good for the business that's invested in it. And this is the reason why, as the nation headlined in 13 August 2014, the U.S. keeps 34,000 immigrants in detention each day simply to meet a quota. Now, this is, again, another long article, so you can check it out at New Abolitionist Radio. I think that covers the brunt of it right there. Uh, any comments, brothers? I mean, what they're saying sounds like this, a, a, a mashup of about three or four years' worth of New Abolitionist Radio reporting. I mean, every I know, single right? thing they hit on. It's ridiculous, man. I mean, you know, of course, I appreciate people getting on in the fight, and and you know, it really you can't afford, you really can't end up doing much more than regurgitating uh, talking points of one another because it's not like the system is really changing. And this is what reform does. See, if you abolish it, we'll have a new story to tell. If it's being abolished, if we're ending the situation, if we're ending slavery. Then in two or three years, five years, someone will have to write a new news story. There'll be new information. But this is evidence of the fact that nothing is changing because this is a brand new story with another brand new report that's quoting several other brand new reports. This all the same news we told you four years ago. Mm. And that was news that somebody else could have told you 10, 15, 20 years before that. It's not changing. Reform is not changing it. Reform is not fixing it. You have to abolish it. 
one of the other things too, what, he, what they were talking about with the government officials, <clears throat> reminded me of, of uh, Harley Leppin. This guy had been the director of Bureau of Prisons, and actually, I'm going to post this on the uh, New Abolitionist Radio page right now. Is a story that I had reported on February 11, 2015. Har Harley G. Lappin, director of Bureau of Prisons from 2004 to 2011. His salary was $180,000. He uh, retired, resigned from the Bureau of Prisons, and became the ex executive vice president and chief corrections officer at mm. the Corrections Corporation of America, in 2011 upon his retirement his salary 1.5 million dollars a year so this man was 25 years into his career and what happened was he got caught in a DUI scandal when he got that DUI and they were not going to be able to you know I mean I don't know why they didn't cover it up like they do for everybody else but for whatever reason he got caught and it became somewhat public knowledge and he made a sudden uh, announcement that he was going to uh, retire and his next job basically paid him 10 times as much as he had made ever before 25 years of his career man you know um I, I, I'm, I don't know why people call this like a new slavery or something like this. it's 150 years old it's the same old slavery yeah, yeah well, it's four or five hundred you four hundred years old five hundred years old but I'm talking about you know the strict I'm saying strictly through the prison. Radio teacher says we're new abolitionists because the same old slavery never ended. That's true. Go ahead, Scotty. You were saying you were talking about the timeline. I, well, I, I, I mean, I was just talking about prison slavery being used oh, okay. almost exclusively has been going on for a hundred, well, maybe a hundred and forty years. Was it ten years? Uh, what was it? Uh, 1875 when the convict leasing program started, officially started. But like you noted, though, you know, if you look at involuntary servitude, that was prison slavery. They brought people who had been charged with crimes, convicted of crimes, and instead of, you know, and they let all these people out to prisons and brought them here to be labor and whatnot. So you're right. It, it, it's still part of the same old, same old. The criminalization is a scapegoat every time. I mean, that's just the end. The, the end of the whole thing comes down to these people know that what they're doing is wrong because they don't have the balls to just outright do it without giving a reason for why they have to do it. Now, if you really don't know, if you really don't care, then you just do what you do. But the fact of the matter being that every time they've preyed on someone. I mean, like the um, what's that movie? Uh, Apocalypto, showing like back in the ancient. What are they Mayans or whatever? Showing back in the in back in the day, way back. How they just raid each other's camps, and you don't believe in our God, so we taking you and sacrificing you. You know, you fresh blood. I mean, that's pretty cold blooded. But at least they believed in what they was doing, and they didn't need to make them people criminals to do what they did. They was like, hey, you vulnerable. We need meat to put on the altar. So, come on, if you can't beat us in a fight, you gonna end up on that altar. That's straight up about it. That's being truthful about it. These snake lion dogs, they just got to make somebody a bad guy. And they the bad guy. Every group has been, the, like I said, the commoners back in old England. Those are just people that were just living, minding their own Like, what's the Braveheart story, basically? People living, minding their own business, regulating their communities, doing whatever. The king come along. Nope, we need this land. So all of y'all going to be subject to the king and pay this tax and do this work and Never have a legacy to leave your family. You're going to be my slave. 
you don't like it? Well, here we go. Go to prison. Do labor anyway. And they just keep moving that on down the timeline of history. Everybody that ends up in the system is because they are some kind of way a savage. The Native American savages, they don't have a God. They, they needed us to give them Christianity. The Africans, oh, they don't have a God. Every indigenous population around the planet of every place that they quote-unquote discovered is a savage that doesn't have God, that has no community, that doesn't understand money, that doesn't understand education, that blah, 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 blah. They deserve to be in shackles and made our slaves so we can turn them into civilized people. It's the same story. We're still doing it right now. Libya, the savage uh, ruler Gaddafi, look what he's doing to these people. We don't see no evidence of that, but they show went in there and destroyed the country. Now, how much worse could it be the savage Gaddafi was to that country now still don't have electricity years later. The savage leaders that they've killed uh, Iraq, uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, the savage leader that they killed, they didn't kill 10 million people in Iraq since he he was in, in control. Who's the savage for real? The same mentality is what they're using right now to justify snatching your brother, your mama, your sister, your wife, your husband, your uncle, your nephew, right off the curb putting them right on in the back of the car, and if they don't survive the ride to the jail, then it'll be suicide with their hands behind their back and they blew their face off. It'll be Sandra Bland, not even in custody, 24 hours dead, hanging. Oh, she killed herself. This woman was a freedom fighter, and she just made it to the office. She killed herself. Well, she had weed in her system, so mm -hmm. she probably did kill herself. I mean, it's always criminalizing. Trayvon, criminalized. Oh, he had a trouble in school. I mean, the kid had weed in his system. I mean, come on. He fought with somebody that attacked him. I mean, damn, this kid was a thug. It's always the same. It's always the same. Well, we're coming up on our break time, Johannes. I do want to just say one thing before we go to break, Scotty, just hold on for a second. I want to put something in perspective when you talked about reform. You know, recently the Federal Task Force came out with a recommendation for reform. Now, this is a federal task force appointed by the president. And the entire... Thing that they came up with is a complete insult to our intelligence. Their bottom line was to reduce the prison population by 60,000 in 10 years. Let's put that in perspective. In 10 years, 12,000 people will have been killed by police. In 10 years, 30,000 people will be killed by prison and jail personnel. In 10 years, 25 million static bodies will have been in prison. In 10 years, 130 million people will be going through the jails. And in 10 years, 30 million people will have been on parole and probation. And your answer is to reduce it by 60,000. You'll replace that in two days. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after these messages. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. That was a quick break. <laughs> um, I only have two stories that I'd like to get in somewhere tonight, but uh, Johanna, I know you posted a few things, so what do you got for us this week? Well, we kind of covered one of them with the, with the study talking about the uh, boost in prison profits, which, you know, ties into the GO and CCA situation, of course. Um, and you know, we, we we stay reporting on that all the time and the stock situation, the stock prices and the ups and downs and all of this. So that's one of them. Um, another thing, I guess, I mean, I don't know. I, I've looked into it and, and there was an incident. So I guess it's worth mentioning this situation with, uh, 
with your boy with Black Lives Matter. I mean, y'all want to blow that out, or where do we stand? What boy? What who? With uh, D-Ray and the, and his stuff getting hacked, and they're talking about how all this information came out that, that they whole thing is a farce. They y'all didn't see that link? There was I saw some pretty the... interesting stuff in there, but it did sound like it came from a right wing organization that printed it out. A lot of the, the things that they were saying, uh, like yeah. saying uh, calling Trump out as a racist was some kind of strategy. That's just the truth. Everybody's doing that. That's no <laughs> damn strategy. That's the right. truth. So if you call it a strategy, you're just adopting something that's happening anyway. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, that's not strategy. No, strategy is convincing your racist friend to run for the nomination of the other party so you can make your yourself look like, you know, you're not a racist. That's strategy. Uh, Hillary Clinton? Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. That's strategy. We used yeah. to want to vote for who was the best man for the job. Now we're voting for who is the least worst for the job. Well, if, yeah, if you want to share well, it and say your words, feel free. But like I said, it came from yeah. a right organization, and it seemed a little bit confusing to me, so I was kind of waiting. So I, I looked into it further before I started mm-hmm. blaming them. Right. Well, looking into it a little bit more, I did, you know, when I first saw it pop out there. And it is, like I said, it is a real story uh, as far as uh, D. Ray McKisson's uh, Twitter account being hacked and, you know, going into talking about all of that. So, I mean, not to get too deep into Verizon and, how these people called and posed as being him and got his passwords changed. and I mean, they gave a pretty thorough story of how this happened, and he agreed that it did happen to him. I mean, so somebody breached security. Um, you know, not to get too conspiratorial, but somebody got into his stuff. So if this is what they really found, it does kind of go along with what we've been reporting, other reports that have come out that were not disproven about Soros, uh, paying into you know these uh, internet uh, uh, social media like whole campaign teams like entire buildings full of people that that's all they do is post uh, uh, catchphrases and and memes and videos of things that they want to promote as you know the the way the narrative should be going so Black Lives Matter is one of those hands up don't shoot is one of those phrases that was heard you know in Ferguson and was pushed out there through these. Uh, people that were funded by Soros as one of his charitable groups. So the the, the connective ties seem to all be there. <clears throat> anyway, they said in a private message that was uh, supposedly obtained and released by these hackers, they said that a guy named Samuel Sinyangwe, Sin, Sin uh, who's a Black Lives Matter activist, said that law enforcement officials will quote-unquote not be ready for the types of crowds that their group will be bringing which are designed to shut down the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Conventions, and they're saying that supposedly they're trying to work in this program, in this uh, operation called the Summer of Chaos, which is supposed to. Now, this is where it does get kind of far-fetched, because I ain't seen Americans give a damn about nothing of consequence in so long. I can't believe they're gonna really create no martial law, talking no trash at the conventions. People don't give a damn. As long as they can get they get in their luxury car and eat a nice meal and go to their house and close the door, they're not gonna. Right, but anyway, that made me think it was right wing propaganda because that's yeah. this whole yeah. race war. Yeah, but uh, his his account was um was hacked, and some of the stuff they were saying is that you know just tying it all together, saying that uh um 
that the whole thing was some kind of a, a operation that Soros has been funding and tied it to the Obama administration in the whole nine yards. So, I mean, I yeah, can't say it's not contact with the attorney general as, as well. But see, here's yeah. the thing. Black Lives Matter was a hashtag. It started as a hashtag during Ferguson. That's all it was. It's a hashtag. Different organizations, different groups, activists and whatnot were on the ground in Ferguson before Black Lives Matter was ever thought of of a phrase. Now, did these three women... right here isn't even as far as I know a part of Black Lives Matter official movement. From what I understand, he moved to Campaign Zero. Yeah, he. There was a split. There was a split between him and those females that now um, have actually, you know, incorporated Black Lives Matter as an organization and what have you. But look, I, it is not enough known about them for me to make some kind of of opinion. Or, or form an opinion. It's just not enough. We don't know what's fact. We don't know what's propaganda. We don't know. We just simply don't know. But we talked to many of those young people associated with that were associating themselves with Black Lives Matter. And I'm telling you, they were not funded by anybody. They were out there because they see the targets on their back. These were young black people that we talked to during, during Ferguson. And so now, Look at this in the context of history. Has the United States government and white, wealthy uh, businessmen, do they have a history of hijacking movements? Most certainly they do. Hell, you had FBI agents started the chapter of the Black Panther Party in Baltimore. All right. That was the FBI agents who started that chapter of the Black Panther Party. We saw um, a bunch of uh, uh, money. Well, Malcolm X talked about it in his message to the grassroots about how these white, wealthy businessmen started providing all these resources to the Negroes that they deemed safe, you know, and what have you. So all, all of this is just history repeating itself and and so I, I don't know if we will ever know you know what's what yeah it's a scene from a movie that's on HBO now about um, the life of uh, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson he was the one right after Kennedy right that took over and, and went yeah. on and pushed the civil rights <clears throat> there's a scene in there where um, Ma- uh, Martin Luther King meets with the head at that time, the head of the of the uh, labor unions of the AFL CIO, and they told him to lay off on you know what he was pressuring for at the time, or they were going to cut all the funding. I, I mean, the rest of the movie was pretty historically accurate. I don't know that they just threw a lie in there about King, but I mean, you know, these are the kind of things like what you said that we've seen, the people who are actually funding these ish, these movements and putting them on the front line so the news covers them and giving them a podium so they can speak. Like we started out the program talking about the brother getting a million dollars from Google to make the slavery museum. I mean, the same thing again, tying back to the Ken Thompson situation. Of course that's a ridiculous thing for him to do, to, to claim that this cop, uh, Liang, didn't need to go to prison. He could do house arrest for murdering this man. Of course we understand that. But understanding politically how that came to pass then our next and best move is to counter what the Asian community did. When you got a community that is currently 12 to 13% Asian and 35% black, 
and that 12%, which is a third of the black population, funds any candidate they want to. They, they, the Asian community came up with over a million dollars in less than a week for, for just one borough, for one city, uh, city um, what do you call them, uh, 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 city council member that they wanted to put in one borough. The restaurants that they own, the businesses they own, they got with some people that had some money, and they put over a million dollars together in like a week so they could put all these bash campaigns out against this woman and to pump up their friend, and they got this dude in office. This is what they got the power to do. They went to Ken Thompson's office with the money in hand, and look, you'll be out of a job. We're going to be over 20% uh, in this community in the next couple of years when you've got to be voted back in, and we'll vote you right out. We'll start damaging your name right now. You need to come out and say that this Asian cop does not need to be the one that goes to prison when all the rest of these white boys and got away with killing up all the Negroes they wanted to. You're not going to make no martyr out of our guy. He stood down because politically he didn't have a choice. Black folks still refuse to organize, still refuse to, to, to make any kind of effort to put their money together so they can control it. All. I mean, Black Lives Matter even talking about they're not going to endorse a candidate because we don't have anybody that's putting any money up. Your Honor, hey, for me on this story, there are some red flags rise up. I have an issue with us following these right-wing uh, conspiracy theories, and several of them are existent in this one article. Martial law is coming, <clears throat> race riots are coming, third term for President Obama, gun seizures. Where do you hear all of that from normally, individually? Yeah, now, but I wouldn't just dismiss it. This brother, now, it's possible this brother is working with these people, yes, and I can say that from personal experience, because when I was down at the TBS special done called uh, America After Charleston, me and Muhaddin Dibaha were there. He was scheduled to be the speaker for Black Lives Matter as the man on the ground from the very beginning. But at the last minute, somebody from Campaign Zero showed up and TBS switched it all around and put them in place instead of Muhaddin, who was talking about abolition. So it's possible he has some connections. I know he's deep in with people uh, in the artist community, like, uh, what's the name, the Beehive, <laughs> you know, uh, Beyonce in there. So it's possible. But in the meantime, this particular story stinks of right-wing propaganda. You know, um, I'm also, um, one person don't make no movement. You know what I'm saying? One man, I don't want to say that term, but I don't know. One monkey don't stop no show, as they say. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, so anything D. Ray McKesson is doing, or any individual is doing, um, that should not reflect on everyone. Again, in my, in, in, from what I've read, BLM is not a real organization other than you know the one that uh uh the garza girl is running in and what have you um but it's really just a loose base it's just a loose movement of of different organizations all fighting for the same thing or fighting for the same things and what have you so but i would not just i would not say gun control is a right-wing conspiracy that's a real thing okay um I get, I do have right, what's considered right wing news sources. Just because it's a right wing news source doesn't mean it's a credible source or the information is wrong. We just had to vet the information, you know. Uh, um, and so those are my thoughts on this. But what I was really thinking about is George Soros. 
Now, I've been knowing about George Soros for a long time. I actually applied apply for a grant from the Open um, Society Foundation that he funds. That's the same foundation that funded, um, uh, what's her name, Michelle Alexander, for her to take a year off of uh, teaching and um, write this book, research and write this book. She got a grant from that foundation to do that. Um, I think that like some of the issues that moveon.org raises and what have you, because I'm I get emails from some of the local move on members and, and you know, these are issues, real issues that's important to them. But in terms of trying to to you know, I'm using their language to reform the criminal justice system. For George Soros to have spent so much money on, quote, unquote, reforming the criminal justice system and, and, and creating these right uh, left-wing organizations that are supposed to be tackling these positions, how then can this man then endorse a Hillary Clinton, which he has, and probably has donated, uh, uh, you know, the maximum amount that he can give to her and have given a bunch of money to the super PAC supporting her. So that right there tells me, you know, that really should say something to you about the person that George Soros is. Controlling the narrative. See, I think they really do want reform, but they just don't want the system to be abolished, you know. It's controlling the narrative, bro. Like we talk about with all of these. At the end of it all, that's 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 how you maintain the power position that you have. I mean, yeah, you may give some concessions here and there because the the pressure, I mean, that's like giving, that's like getting a bigger size uh, ladle to give the slaves water during the day. That's, that's reform. That's change. That's positive change. That's change you could believe in or whatever Obama ran on. You know, you start out the slave day giving them a damn tablespoon. So, okay, I understand y'all suffering. We, You know what? Mass is going to be good to you. I'm going to give you a little bit bigger spoon. You're still doing what you're doing. You haven't given up even one hair of your position of power. You haven't moved in any way whatsoever. And when you fund these people and you defame and you shut out the voices of the grassroots, because like you said when Malcolm X is a message to the grassroots at that time, he was speaking to all the people that wasn't invited to, to the march on Washington. He was talking to the people who were not there, who were not invited. So, okay, let's say a march on Washington happens today with, with Black Lives Matter and whatever it is, the zero whatever, and, and uh, the, the new Jim Crow movement and all these other people. Do you think New Abolitionist Radio is going to be invited to that? We've seen over the years that they're not trying to invite us to nothing. They're not trying to answer our emails, inboxes, phone calls. You get a handful here and there. And when they find out what we're talking about, they magically disappear at the last minute. I've had several of these people that have agreed when they didn't know what was up. And then once they start reading the literature or start looking us up or they their spokesperson checked into us, then suddenly they had another appointment that they had to. And they'll get back with us when they can come when they can be available again and another year passes. So you had grassroots movements, like you said, before Black Lives Matter was even thought of, like Arlene Ason and uh uh uh, what's the brother's name? Uh, Kali. Uh, Kali Akuno. Uh, Akuno, yeah. With uh, they had the black, uh, the the Malcolm X grassroots movement going on right now. 
they're the ones that started the every one every 28 hours campaign. Right. They're the ones that did that that did that research and gave you actual facts and numbers and had a and had a platform that they were basing their activism on. This is where it is. This is where we need to move to. They had a, a an actual something there that you could work with. Then you get these foggy movements, these unclear movements, these hazy movements of just feelings and emotions. And you get these crazy people that nobody knows that just show up on the stage at the campaigns and steal the mic and say a bunch of stuff that nobody really knows what the hell is going on. And you shut out the voices of the people who had studies that they had done for years, that had doctors and lawyers and people in positions on the record and, and quoting uh, being quoted in their reports, on and on and on, just like you had Angela Chan come on uh, Black Talk Radio News and talk about slavery was never abolished. She was one that quoted, Huffington Post also quoted those numbers, the one every 28 hours. This was the organic movement beginning to take shape. So what came in to the rescue for white supremacy, for modern day slavery? These other groups that they bought and paid for. I, I mean, I can't just keep on letting these people get away with not getting put on front street with it. If you're not supporting the groups that was already there, that had actual evidence, that had a clear path they were trying to take, get something done, and you got to come in with something that inspires people to have feelings and emotions, and it drives a race riots, and it drives a line down the races, and all this other crap that we already seen don't get us nowhere, you are a part of the problem. So I'm saying these people are a part of the problem as far as I'm concerned. From Michelle Alexander on down, yeah, she got more information out there, but it's high time by now, after all these years and millions of books you've sold and all these speaking engagements, you should have damn well by now identified yourself with the abolitionist movement because you know it's the only one that's actually talking about what the problem is. Yeah, that's true, man. And and you know, Johanna, the reason that ain't nobody well, Max gets invited to stuff because of what what of his work. I think you might have got invited to something, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm, but I'm these are by other grassroots organizations, though. Right. You right. know, these people that are out here doing the reports and doing the work just like we are, sure, I get invited to things and I do what I can. And yeah, Max is out there. I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, uh, you know, uh, crap on his position with what he's doing. Yes, we're invited and we're involved with a lot of this, but just like he told you, when that's a front stage PBS event that went on, you see right. what happened. They're right. just not willing to let us into the mainstream conversation because we got facts. We got the evidence. We got a clear path of where we need to go to make anything happen of consequence. We're not talking about people's feelings. We're talking about millions of lives. Get right. these people off the plantation. Get these 70,000 people that's getting raped every day out of the jail system. Get these 3,500 people that's getting murdered every year out of that situation. Get these people some freedom. Right, right. But but my point is, is that we've been doing this for so long, man, and you know they listening, and they know you ain't going to compromise your principles. You're not going to compromise the abolitionist movement for some damn butter biscuits. You're not going to water down the message. You're not going to start talking about where all these other issues intersect and all. And no, you're going to keep the focus on the main problem, and the main problem is slavery. So that's I mean, why. Maybe they put some money on the table. Maybe they, you know, if they listen and put some money on the table, maybe I will. Shit. <laughs> if they put the money on the table, they some fools. Put a million dollars out there. Maybe I'll come to your thing and, and tell whatever lie you want me to tell. When I get that million dollars, I can't be held responsible for what Scotty do when he when he gets the million in his bank account. But I'll come out and say <laughs> that it's something else. I can't be held responsible for what Max do 
when he get his share of the million, and when he, you know, I mean, if, if you want me to say the, the other stuff and change the story, if it will advance the agenda ultimately, you know what? I'll go out there and go live for him and give me the money. I'll take a million from Google and tell him I'm gonna build a slavery museum, and it'll be it'll be like some of these projects that take 10, 15, 20 years for it to get done. You keep coming around, you ain't even broke ground yet, but I, that money will be out here used. Hey, uh, you know, you're hunting. I want to try to squeeze in at least one more of these few stories and stuff. Yeah. But I, I would like to say, in regard to what you were talking about earlier, um, is that an example would be Don Lemon in media. Now, just a couple of years ago, Don Lemon was telling us how we were living in a post-racial society, and he was telling us that if we just pulled up our pants, stopped using the N-word, and stopped being so dirty, everything would be okay. But just recently, he was allowed to be the representative for black America that spoke to the presidential candidates during the debate asking about racism in the justice system. When just a little while ago, he didn't even know it freaking existed. But now he's the expert and the spokesperson because he was put in a place to be that way. Yeah, not only that, I remember him and Morgan Freeman sitting up there on CNN talking about racism don't even exist. Right. Right. And still, he's allowed to speak as if he's some kind of expert when he didn't know his ass from a hole in the ground just yesterday. Right. But anyway, I want to get in a real bombshell that recently occurred, and that's uh, the Supreme Court decision and the dissent by uh, Sotomayor's uh, dissent. I'd like to get into a little bit about what that is all about. As you know, we've been reporting on how these people and we mean these people in the justice system and the government working with private industry to get this done, put these systems into place and then exploit them. Now, we told you last year about what was going on in Country Club Hills, Missouri. And I'm going to read a little quote just from the article you can find on New Abolitionist Radio. It said, if you want to know what a corrupt police state of revenue collecting, citation-addicted bureaucrats look like, look in Missouri. A recent report showed that there were 23,457 arrest warrants pending in Pine Lawn Municipal Court in St. Louis County. That's about 7.3 per resident. However, Pine Lawn is far from the worst. The town of Country Club Hills has over 35,000 outstanding arrest warrants or a mind-blowing 26.9 per resident. The vast majority of these warrants of what St. Louis residents have come to call poverty violations. Poverty violations are crimes that have no victim and are designed to generate revenue for the state. They are things like driving with a suspended license, expired plates, expired registration, and a failure to provide proof of insurance. Now, this was us telling you this just last year and even before that. And now, here we go. Typically, when police illegally stop an individual on the street without reasonable suspicion, any fruits of that stop, such as the discovery of illegal drugs, must be suppressed in court because the stop was unreasonable seizure. Under the Fourth Amendment, uh, Strait gave the justices an opportunity to affirm this constitutional rule. But instead, Justice Stephen Breyer joined the court's four conservatives to add a huge loophole to the long-established doctrine. In an opinion by Justice Clarence Thomas, the court found that if an officer illegally stops an individual, then discovers an arrest warrant, even for an incredibly minor crime like a traffic violation, 
that stop is legitimized. And any evidence seized can be used in court. The only restriction is when an officer engages in flagrant police misconduct, which the decision declines to define. Now, yeah. this just happened with the Supreme Court where they're saying your Fourth Amendment violations can be struck. And the right. reason they do that is because they're putting all these warrants on people so they can get you anytime, anywhere, for anything. And if you want to even take it further, just add that new ERAD equipment to the equation and see what you get. Right. You know, I'm 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 just a slave don't have rights, man. And so what they're saying is if you have an outstanding warrant, you're the equivalent of a runaway slave. So since a slave don't have no rights, if a cop see you on the street, a slave catcher see you on the street, and he doesn't have any reason to suspect you a slave except for the color of your skin or or some, you know, arbitrary reason like that. So if he stops you, you know, and and then finds you with this contraband, and even though the Constitution says, you know, you aren't, you have these certain rights, you have Fourth Amendment right to be free of unreasonable uh, searches and seizures and stuff like that. Well, you don't have no rights because you a runaway slave. Is that's a, that's the simplest way I can put it for people. That warrant that you have for your arrest basically uh, um, confers runaway slave status on you. Therefore, you don't right. have no rights. And it could be for anything. For anything. For unpaid tacket, traffic ticket from 1972, which is, by now, would be something like $40 million zillion, gajillion dollars that you have to pay. Hmm. The thing that curses me out is that <clears throat> we they set us up basically. I mean, this is how people don't know they head from their ass. This is how people don't know which way is up because it's always spinning. It's always spinning the information. It's always creating these fake stories. And this is, again, what reform does. If you abolish something and it's gone, it can't be spun. It can't be used for some other purpose at a later time. Just last year, I was, myself was just giving big ups to Supreme Court Justice Kennedy, uh, uh, Stephen Breyer, and other uh, Supreme Court justices. They were going to the uh, to the House for uh, their budget, some kind of budget meeting that was talking about you know funding for the coming years for the Supreme Court and all this and other things. But this is when we got the quote of him saying that the idea of total incarceration is not working; that the justice system itself is somewhat broken. You know these things they're talking about the cost and the human factors and really uh, identifying with people you know on a, on a human level and all of these these talking points that were mentioned and like when we talk about people who are found to be corrupt and in criminal uh, situations within the system and how they don't ever do any jail time really nobody ever goes to jail they just find out they're corrupt and they cut them out that job and they go someplace else get another job whatever same thing with this to be a Supreme Court justice and sit up here and say how this thing is broken and how these things don't work and how we got to get away from this system and then never nothing is proposed, never anything changes. Well, you, as a judge, you get to sit on a case like this and then you vote for it. I mean, I don't understand that. You vote, you vote for this kind of a case. The case came from originally from it's called Utah versus Streif. Um, says it rose from a police surveillance of a house in South in South Salt Lake out in Utah based on an anonymous tip 
which is some BS right then and there from the start. Not even based on any kind of documentable police work, but an anonymous tip, like what got John, uh, uh, got Tamir Rice killed. An anonymous tip of some citizen said narcotics activity was going on at a house. Mm. So, police officer Douglas, which could be the police, mad that these people are selling more dope than they're selling. But yeah, I've got tips, anonymous tips before. Yeah, that's that's my my conspiracy. But anyway, so Douglas Fackrell stopped uh, Edward Streif after he he left the house. That was, uh, and this was based on what the state later conceded was an insufficient grounds for even making the stop in the first place. So the stop that he made of this man coming out of the anonymous tip drug house was illegal because he didn't do anything to deserve to get stopped. So Frackle ran a check, got his ID, ran a check, and discovered a warrant for a minor traffic violation. He arrested Mr. Streep. He searched him, and he found a baggie containing methamphetamines and drug paraphernalia. The question in front of the justices is whether the drugs must be suppressed in his eventual trial because it was an, un, an unlawful stop, whether they could be used as evidence in the, given, uh, in, the, in, the, in the arrest warrant. So Justice Thomas, Clarence Thomas, says Frackle was at most negligent. There is no evidence that Officer Frackle's illegal stop reflected fragrantly unlawful police misconduct. How in the hell is illegal behavior not flagrantly unlawful? Mm. What kind of... What is that? How does he say that? You are a Supreme Court justice. Yeah. Yes. This man says that the illegal stop reflects... does not reflect... An illegal stop does not reflect flagrantly unlawful police misconduct. That's the whole basis for saying... At this point, we're deciding that you could be stopped for any reason, and when we run your identification, we find a warrant, then you can be subject to whatever we want to say that you did in the first place. So Sotomayor said that federal and state databases show 7.8 million outstanding warrants, the vast majority of which appear to be for minor offenses. There are 180,000 misdemeanor warrants in Utah alone. According to the Justice Department, 16,000 of the 21,000 residents of Ferguson, Missouri, are subject to arrest warrants. I don't know, man. I don't know. We've got to abolish it because reform is is reform is going to cause it to continue to double and quadruple in size. That's what reform is going to do. We got to end it. We have to do something, damn quick, man. This happens every 50 years when we wake up from our long slumbers and our children have to fight the battles we didn't win. Every 50 years, 2006, uh, um, let's say 1916, 1965, 2015, 2065 is going to be the next fight. It's going to be too damn late then. I don't think we'll be able to manage it. Stick quickly and when we come back, we'll finish our stories and our profile. You're listening to Listeners Radio. Black Talk Radio Network is made possible in part with help from the Black Talk Media Project, a North Carolina-based nonprofit engaged in the production and distribution of independent digital black media. Find out more by going to blacktalkradionetwork.com or blacktalkmediaproject.org and look for the menu tab, Crowdfunding Black Media. Black Talk Media Project, helping to provide you with new black media for the new millennium. 
New Black Talk Radio. New Black Media for the new millennium. Peace and welcome back to New Aboriginals Radio. Before we go into our uh, final stories and our profiles, I would like to point out two stories that you need to check out. They're available on New Abolitionist Radio's Facebook page. We weren't able to get to them, but you need to know them. The one is the private probation problem is worse than anyone thought. You have to keep in mind, when it comes to modern-day slavery, it's not just happening behind bars. There are 6 to 8 million people on probation or parole right now who are also caught up in this, and that doesn't even count the people who are dealing with the poverty crimes that we just spoke of tonight. So modern slavery encompasses just about every part of our society. It's not limited to just who's behind bars. Uh, also, we would like to point out the story about the three New York Police Department slave catchers with ties to New York mayor who was busted in an FBI corruption sting. You can probably find out details about that on Black Talk Radio Network's news with Scott Reed. I'm sure I think he went into that in the detail, but if not, just check out what we have here on New Abolitionist Radio. These are the people that started things like Stop and Frisk. These are the people that are telling you, like, uh, if you weren't killing each other, we wouldn't have to send white cops in there to protect you. These are the people that are doing that to you, and look what they're doing themselves. Yeah, I might have some audio on that, uh, Max, from a local news affiliate. You want me to pull that up? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, it's loading up, but like you stated, I published an article on this on uh, Black Talk Radio Network. I did talk about it on my program, but I I made a blog post, um, and it's updated. It's for NYPD slave catchers. Uh, the name of the piece is for NYPD slave catchers with ties to NYC mayor busted and FBI corruption stings. So um, I'm just, it should be starting up at any moment. So I'll just read a little bit until. Congressman you know. McHenry, thank you for keeping the cost of homeownership down. Okay, y'all don't want to hear about my sorry ass. Well, he ain't mine, but the sorry representative that represents North Carolina 10th District. Y'all don't want to hear about him. Four cops, including two top commanders, under arrest on corruption charges. The charges stem from the multiple ongoing investigations into Mayor de Blasio's campaign fundraising. CBS 2 political reporter Marsha Kramer is live in Lower Manhattan with the very latest. Marsha. Well, good afternoon. You know, we've heard a lot about the corruption investigations involving the NYPD, but today marks the first actual arrest. And it's not the finest moment for the agency known as New York's finest. Federal agents raided the Borough Park home of Jeremy Reichberg today, one of two Jewish businessmen involved in a massive scheme to bribe top NYPD officials. Reichberg charged in a federal complaint with offering a cornucopia of gifts and trips to two top cops. Deputy Inspector James Grant, commanding officer of the 19th Precinct in Manhattan, and Deputy Chief Michael Harrington both had recently been reassigned. The gifts to Grant reportedly included a 2013 trip to the Las Vegas Super Bowl that included the services of a prostitute. Hotel rooms for a vacation in Rome, a luxury watch, home repairs, a video game system for his kids, jewelry for his wife. Harrington's largesse reportedly included lavish dinners, Nets basketball tickets, Rangers hockey tickets, hotel rooms for a Chicago family trip, and tens of thousands of dollars in payments to a security company run by Harrington's family. The gifts allegedly paid for by Reichberg and a businessman identified in the complaint as CW1, cooperating witness one who has been previously identified 
testified as businessman Jonah Rechnitz. Both gave generously to Mayor de Blasio and were on his inauguration committee. Rechnitz was also a cooperating witness in the recent charges brought against Correction Union President Norman Seabrook and hedge fund operator Murray Huberfeld. At the time, U.S. Attorney Preet Barrera said Rechnitz was being questioned in connection with a number of investigations. The complaint does say that he is um, assisting other investigations as well. In exchange for the gifts, Reichberg and Rechnitz reportedly got all kinds of favors from the cops. Everything from providing police escorts for them and their friends, assisting with private disputes, and providing security at religious sites and events, as well as fixing tickets. Reichberg reportedly said he had so much juice in the NYPD, he was the fix-it guy. He also bragged he got Grant the job of commander of the 19th Precinct. A second set of complaints charges Sergeant David Villanueva and police officer Richard Oshita in connection with bribes for gun permits. Also charged is Alex Shia Lichtenstein, who claimed he paid bribes of as much as $6,000 and that he obtained as many as 150 permits. Now, well, these cops are the, not the first to be uh, disciplined by the NYPD. They're the first to be arrested, but the NYPD has disciplined about 12 people. Some have been simply transferred, others removed from their jobs, others sent to desk jobs, and still others had their guns and badges taken away. Reporting live from Lower Manhattan, I'm Marcia Kramer, CBS 2 News. Now, here's an update to this. Two of the top dudes... Um, it might have been all four, but I know at least two other dudes, Bratton, Bill Bratton, who listens to Black Talk Radio Network. How you doing, NYPD? Thank you for uh, keeping the cost of commissioner. Let me stop this thing here. Let me just close that out because he told uh, some of his. I'm getting a lot of feedback off somebody's line, but um, um, he told a class of graduating cadets that the black community, they see us because every time something bad happens, police are present. Um, he talking about it, talking about it in a historical sense, you know, with the Black Panthers, New York 21, all, 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 you know, um, all the people they set up and killed in that area uh, of New York and New Jersey. But he said they also refer to us as slave catchers. You don't hear that being said on no other radio network. I have never heard it outside of this network, outside of people um, who are associated with this network, refer to police as slave catchers. So I know he listened. But Bill Bratton um, reinstated these dudes so that they could then retire and also get some kind of good guy letter is what it's called which allows them to have a, a concealed and carry permit for life you know so again you know here here's the top slave cat if that had been me or you and then you you know people we won't tend to want to play partisan politics talking about republicans versus democrat Mayor de Blasio is a Democrat married to a black woman. Remember the NYPD slave catchers turned their backs on him because uh, he gave his son the black talk and he talked about it publicly. You know, the talk that all, you know, all black parents should be talking to their sons and daughters, not just their their sons and what have you. So this is corruption. This is, uh, hey, they busted the dude in Charlotte, the former mayor of Charlotte. They've been bust doing public corruption um, uh, investigations all over this country, man. I don't know if it's Loretta Lynch or if this started under 
um, Eric Holder, and it just continued. But I mean, they I heard today, I have not confirmed this, that another superdelegate, because de Blasio is a Clinton superdelegate, but a, a black congressman, he got like an African name. Y'all might know who I'm talking about. Y'all may not know. Shaka Fatah, something like that. Uh, Congressman Shaka Fatah uh, was also just uh, convicted of public corruption, accepting money for political favors and whatnot, man. And this is why I don't understand outside, you know, of our re- with Hillary Clinton and the Clintons playing such a huge role in modern day slavery in the past, what, 30 years, uh, 20, 30 years, you know, is, is uh, also Hillary Clinton. Look, they had a person, a businessman, a businessman from Chicago. They appointed him, the State Department and Hillary Clinton's uh, uh, people appointed this guy to a nuclear security board where they discussing nuclear secrets and stuff like that. And and all the people on the board, you know, for 20, 30 years plus have been working in these related industries and they all got top secret security clearances. And here's this guy who was nothing more than a Wall Street trader who donated a, so, a whole bunch of money to Democrats as well as the Clinton Foundation. And he was given appointed by Hillary Clinton's people a seat on this board. He's gone now after it got got discovered. So I'm just trying I'm just trying to tell you, man, this is not an isolated incident with these four cops and and again the corruption, the cover up and and minimizing the seriousness of the crimes of people uh, uh, entrusted with so much power and, and to allow these guys to be reinstated just so they can retire and, and continue to collect taxpayer pensions and whatnot. This is just crazy. Remember John Burge, the uh uh of Chicago commander that tortures hundreds of people into confessing to crimes they did not commit. He's still getting a pension. So I ain't mean to run on so long, man, but man. Um I'm cognizant there's a there's a reword going on. I'm cognizant that we have three seconds left and only three minutes to do it. So I just want to say this briefly that we've been trying to tell people about what's going on here in New York. Look what you got right now. You got the corrections officers tied in with the police, tied in with the mayor, and we've already reported on the $10 million a week that they're making in these poverty crimes. You know, you've seen it all. Scotty pointed out quite a bit of it. It don't take a genius to put all of this stuff together and figure out what's happening to the people of New York State where a teenager gets arrested and becomes worth $350,000 to a private prison where people like Khalif Browder are murdered. And that's what happened to them. They're murdered as children, never got a chance to see a future because they got a $350,000 price tag on their head. So this kind of shows you, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure it out. Make sure you check out the articles on New Abolitionist Radio. I think we need to get into our abolitionist, uh, our rider of the 21st century underground railroad. And this one comes from Brother Johanna this week. And it is... Uh, Titled Man Suits for $30 million after serving 13 plus years for murder he didn't commit. Comes from KDVR.com. Our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Lawrence Lorenzo Montoya, who was just 14 years old when he was sentenced to life in prison for a murder he did not commit. And now he's suing the city for $30 million. 
On New Year's Day 2000, Denver teacher Emily Johnson was brutally killed in a homeless, her car was stolen. Denver homicide detective grilled Montoya for two and a half hours, most of the time without even a parent present. Attorney Lisa Polanski said they were yelling and screaming in his face, making up evidence, banging on the table and cornering him against the wall, telling him he was going to spend the rest of his life in prison and should say goodbye to his mother. The police interrogation tape showed detectives lying to Montoya about the evidence and statements from other teens. Montoya told police that he was joyriding in the stolen car the next day, but did not commit the crime, wasn't there when it happened, and didn't know anything about it. According to the lawsuit, at least 65 times, Montoya told police he did not have anything to do with the death. Finally sobbing, he told police what they wanted to hear. I without doubt believe he was coerced, Polanski said. He ends up being convicted of a crime because the police coerced him to a confession. Uh, Attorney David Fisher said, amazing how they call torture coercion. <laughs> According to the lawsuit, the interrogation tape shows detectives coaching Montoya through the false confession. It accuses police of ignoring or lying about other evidence that cleared Montoya. Montoya was charged as an adult at 14 years old, convicted and sentenced to life in prison. He spent 13 years, 7 months and 13 days behind bars until the judge vacated the conviction in 2014 after new DNA testing exonerated him. Fisher said it's hard to understand why an innocent person would confess, but points out 44% of juveniles exonerated by DNA were coerced into false confessions, just as Scotty was just explaining with uh, Officer Burge there. To me, there's nothing worse than a kid who at 14 years old went to an, into an adult prison facility. It could be avoided, and it needs to be avoided, he said. Added Pulaski, the district attorney needs to admit their mistake. And I think it's more than a mistake. They, in, their intentional conduct in fabricating and continuing just injustice. Polanski said Montoya is having a difficult time reintegrating into society. The city has not yet filed a response to the lawsuit. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio welcome you, Brother Montoya, to freedom. Well. Salute. Welcome home. Welcome home. 14-year-old boy in prison. Innocent. Wait, wait, wait a minute. I'm confused about something. So they vacated his system, uh, his <laughs> sentence and or conviction in 2014, and he's just getting out? No, he's now suing. Oh, he's suing $30 million for Okay. Well, he yeah. sounds like he's, another 14-year-old from Detroit. Okay. They just recently uh, uh, got out. Devontae Sanford, you know, 14 years old, coerced him in the con- And then even after a New York hitman who heard about this young kid who had been convicted for crimes he had committed, this hitman knew he killed them people and that boy didn't have nothing to do with it, took the unusual step. His name is Vincent Smothers of of offering to testify at first you know he wouldn't do it on the stand he just won't do it through his attorney but then when they wouldn't accept that he was like darn it i'll testify then you know what i'm saying and finally Devonte sanford just got said he was 14 years old when it happened to him like like max was saying like was just talking about new york 
They're going after children. These are children. But I think it was Johanna who said the average, I think it was you, bro, who said the average age of the uh, African brought from Africa was around 14 or 15, 16. For 300 years, man. 300 years of going to the country and kidnapping the children and the youth, the young adults. I mean, it's... You can see just by the price tags that that's who they want. It's, it's three hundred fifty thousand dollars in New York for a teenager. In South Carolina, it's one hundred thousand. The average yeah. price, price is thirty-two thousand a year, so they're paying like ten times that in New York for a child. Yep, Chicago was the one that got us that got us on the uh, on the trail. I remember when they, when you first broke those numbers out of Chicago, like two hundred thousand, Cook County. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and it just spiraled from there. Yeah, man. I mean, I say it every week, and I will continue to say it every day of my life because it means something to me. Like like my life means something to me. This is for the children. I'm grown. Yeah, I could get caught up to a certain extent, but I mean, yeah, there's also the other side of it too. I could fight for myself. I can I can run. I can I can disappear if I need to. Like if it's really that, if it come down to that. I feel like I'm going to do my best to not go. They're going to have to catch me somewhere. I don't see them coming and just cluck me upside the head. I wake up locked up. Because if I ain't did it, I ain't trying to go down for it. But you take a damn... My son is third to be 13 years old in August. This boy is a child. Big, he nearly... He's nearly as... Right, George Stitt, He nearly as tall as I am, but he's about as goofy as a six or seven-year-old kid with some of the stuff he that come out of his mouth. This child knows about things that we've discussed, and he know I do this program. All the educated on whatever, but I bet you could take him on a good day and scare him and threaten him and get him to just okay, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. Well, it's here, sign here, and he's convicted of murder. They're doing it to children, so we're doing what we're doing to a. See, you can't reform that, and that is part and parcel of what they do. And until they can separate this kind of story from what they do. From what they claim they do, they don't need to do a damn thing. You know, Your Honor, with marriages for my children being married, I have a total now coming up in this month and next month of almost 17 grandchildren. According to statistics, at least three of my grandchildren are going to end up in prison. I am not having that shit. It's just part of mine. I'm not having it for my grandchildren's sake. For your grandchildren's sake. You know, I know what the stats are better than just by anybody else. No, you're not going to do that to my children. You already did it to my sons. Hmm. It's exactly how I feel. That is exactly where I stand on it. I look at these boys' nephews. I have, what, three, four nephews, my sons, two boys of my own. You know, I mean, just out of those, these are the people that I know and close to almost every day. There's no way you're going to get away with it, man. Because they're saying by these stats that at least two of mine is going down, too. And no. no. I've three sons, to be honest. Uh, three and one more that I raised from birth who was my nephew. Two of them are in prison for life. So, yeah, the stats do apply. They apply to me, apparently, even greater than what they would normally apply. Again, this is why I don't see how 80% uh, black voters uh, voted for Hillary Clinton except for the misdirection, except for the super black super delegates 
doing the little sit-in up there and what have you. Um, but I'm, I'm, uh, it's, it's just staggering, man. All of us have been affected. My brother went to prison. You know, they tried to set me up to go to prison, but I didn't go because I was able to fight. And But um, my cousin, at least three cousins that I know of and probably got other cousins, you know, uh, I know some of my cousin's children has been in prison. So how in the hell do we not see what's going on? But we do need to move fellas into the abolitionist profile of the week, who, whoever got that. We, we've only got about five minutes. You just want to give a short version of it and encourage our listeners. To hey, I don't got much to say on the closing thoughts. I, I'm in slavery, hell. Okay. Um, well, all right, just give us a short version of it if you can, either yourself or Johanna. Uh, the link is Yohan- Johanna, you go ahead and knock it out, bro. All right, let's go. Today's new uh, abolitionist uh, profile is Martin Delaney. Uh, Martin Robinson Delaney, 1812-1885, was an African-American abolitionist, the first African-American field officer in the United States Army, and one of the earliest African-Americans to encourage a return to Africa. Delaney was born in Charleston, Virginia, which is now West Virginia, to a slave father and a free mother. His mother took the children to Pennsylvania in 1822 to avoid them be, uh, becoming slaves. He entered Harvard Medical School in 1850 to finish his formal medical education along with two other black students, was, but was dismissed after only three weeks as a result of petitions. When the Civil War began in 61, he returned to the United States, jettisoned for a time his immigrationist views. Uh, he came on back to fight in that war. In 1865, February, after meeting with President Abraham Lincoln, he persuaded the administration to create an all-black corps led by African-American officers. He was commissioned as a major in the 52nd U.S. Colored Troops Regiment. With that appointment, he became the first line officer in U.S. Army history. When Reconstruction began, Delaney was assigned to the Freedmen's Bureau in South Carolina. There he called for black pride, the enforcement of black civil rights, and the land of free people. He became active in local Republican politics, losing a close election for lieutenant governor of South Carolina, but later serving briefly as a judge in Charleston, South Carolina. As Republicans lost power in the state, Delaney renewed his calls for immigration, becoming in 1878 an official in the Liberian Exodus Joint Stock Steamship Company. He also wrote in 1879 the Principia of Ethnology, a book that argued for race, pride, and purity. The, uh, the New Abolitions Radio salutes our dear ancestor, Martin Delaney. You can read the rest of his story on the New Abolitions Radio link that we're about to post right now. Salute. I've already got it up, Johanna. I got that up in the writer okay. as well. Right on. Right on. Indeed. Salute. Well, salute. That's our program this week. Uh, all this left is our final comments. We appreciate you being here. We want you to continue to support us, please. And also support the workers strike or the prison labor strike on September 9th. If you know someone in prison or in jail or in a youth detention facility or in an immigration center, please tell them what is happening on September 9th so this can be a unified effort and we can shake the foundations of this nation with that simple act. Indeed. Indeed. Brother Johanna, you want to close this out with something? Man, I said so much. Yeah, I said so much in this one. I just, uh, I just every week my mind is blown, and uh, you know we stay on this all day, every day, people. So you know, just as I always try to remind myself to tell y'all, you know, peace to the abolitionists, because really you're the ones that's actually in the war. You're the ones facing the hell. If you actually out here fighting the end this system, you catching hell on all sides. People don't understand you. They don't want to align with you. They don't want to be public and say that they agree with what you're talking about. They're trying to save their little seat of, of, of comfort that they got that's benefiting from the system. So you're catching hell on all sides. So I say peace to you. Keep on fighting. 
to the people that's oppressing us, your day is coming. Mm. Word. Anything from you, Scotty? Um, only thing I add is may that day come soon in slavery. Amen. I didn't get a chance to say anything about the dissent from Justice Sotomayor, so I'm going to say that right now. Who gives a damn if one judge dissents when the legality is passed? She didn't have to say anything. We already knew. This just makes it seem like they went down with a fight, which is BS too. Despite her declarations of impending fascism and unconstitutional oppressive tactics by law enforcement, I bet you $2 and a cop's favorite donut, she takes a happy ass right back to work tomorrow. Quote, so that is how democracy works, will be uttered. They'll applaud her false courage, and none of that will change the fact that your little ass can become state property now at any moment. A friend of mine asked, what should she do? What recourse does she have? Quit? Yes. Better to quit than to participate in madness. Stand up, say this is madness, and quit. And know, like we know, that abolition is a, revo- a abolition is a reason for a revolution. So we can finally know some freaking peace. Peace. Rise up, 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 rise up. Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time. Rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing. Rise